0: This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash SerialKillers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash SerialKillers.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
2: It's December 11th, 1982, in the town of Novoshoktinsk, and 10-year-old Olga Stomachenok is missing. She'd been on her way home from piano lessons, walking the path she'd taken twice a week since age six, but she'd never arrived. As any parents would, Mr. and Mrs. Dalmachinuk held out hope that their daughter would turn up alive and well. They didn't know what the police knew. The police had already found the mutilated corpses of four other missing girls. A few weeks later, a postcard arrived, written in shaky, childish script, filled with grammatical and spelling errors. This note would forever change the lives of Olga's parents. Quote, Parents of the Missing Child. Greetings, parents. Don't get upset. She is not the first and not the last. Before New Year we need another ten. If you want to find her, then search among the leaves on the Vidarovsky Posodki. And below the message, a signature by someone who called himself Sadist Black Cat.
0: Of course the note was nonsense. First of all, our listeners from last week know that Andrei Chikatilo, Olga's true killer, wasn't one for bragging to the police, and he certainly didn't call himself Black Cat. Second, the writer refers to himself as We, implying that multiple people were behind the killing. Again, not true. And third,
2: There was no body among the leaves of Widorowski Posadki, otherwise known as Darevsky Woods. Olga would be dug up four months later by an unwitting tractor driver on a collective farm. Her chest had been ripped open, her heart removed, bowels and uterus cut out, and as we know from last week, eyes carved out of the sockets.
0: But it begs the question, who would try to steal credit for doing that to a ten-year-old?
2: As it turns out, plenty of people... Viktor Budakov, the case's lead investigator, immediately doubted Black Cat's note. Someone who could barely construct a sentence wasn't capable of murdering five children.
0: But over his eight years on the case, Budakov would encounter thousands of false suspects far more convincing than Black Cat. And someone like Black Cat, unstable, daring, and provocative, certainly fit the popular image of a serial killer.
2: For this episode, we're going to continue our study of Chikatilo through the eyes of the detectives who arrested him. How they caught him...
0: And why it took so long.
2: Gives us yet another perspective into this horrific killer, and leads us to the most important question of all. Was Chikatilo psychologically fit to stand trial for his crimes? Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Serial Killers. Today, we're going to continue our dive into the life of Andrei Chikatilo, the Butcher of Rostov. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
0: Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Serial Killers on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out.
2: And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parkast, and on Twitter, at Parkast Network.
0: For those just joining us this week, let's do a little recap.
2: Andrei Chikatilo's problems started at a young age. Born into war-torn Ukraine, he grew up with deep emasculation issues, manifesting as sexual impotence. This caused decades of severe depression, until, in his 40s, he took a job teaching There, he began to molest his younger students. Vanessa is going to take over the discussion of Chikatilo's psychology. Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show.
0: Thanks, Greg. Molesting his students gave Chikatilo his first true satisfaction in his life. He realized that dominance and abuse were his stimulus and that he was powerless to resist them. His advances were random, ill-planned, he had yet to become a practiced predator
2: the school found out about his abuses and quietly fired him but that was just the beginning on december 22, 1978 chikatilo lured nine-year-old yelena zakotnova to a shack with the intent of molesting her when he failed to sustain an erection impulse took hold of chikatilo and he stabbed yelena to death
0: The act gave Chikatilo a release beyond his wildest dreams. It was the ultimate form of sexual gratification, what he'd been searching for since puberty. For three years, he resisted the urge to kill again, but he was fighting his deepest, most intimate instincts. It was only a matter of time.
2: On September 3rd, 1981, Chikatilo struck again, murdering and mutilating 17-year-old Larissa Kachenko. It was the beginning of a spree and over his next few killings, he'd establish a ritual for his killings.
0: He'd find down-and-out kids or young adults, lure them to the woods with promises of food, then attack them. He used a knife and rope to torture them, though he sometimes bludgeoned or suffocated his victims. He enjoyed cutting out their sexual organs, either castrating the boys or excising the uterus of the girl. Much of this happened while the victims were still alive. In
2: fact... Chikatilo disfigured the bodies so horribly that police often struggled to identify them. But who were these officers and how did they come to this case? Before we return to our butcher of Rostov, let's learn a little more about one of the investigation's most prominent figures, Detective Viktor Budakov. Budokov was born just after World War II to a peasant family in the Russian countryside on a poor collective farm called Bolshevik. Famines left his family hungry. Winters brought disease, killing two of his sisters via scarlet fever and whooping cough. Budakov contracted both diseases, but
0: somehow he survived. While Chikatilo folded under his childhood trauma, Budakov seemed tempered by it. His chores gave him discipline, his mind proved sharper than his fellow peasants, and he was big enough and proud enough to fight when threatened. In many ways, Budakov grew into the ideal Soviet male by embodying grit through perseverance.
2: Like all Soviet men, Budakov served two years in the army, after which he worked his way to Rostov, where he rose to a coveted job as a factory foreman. He never wanted to be a policeman. It paid less than the factory and required longer hours. But in 1972, the government issued a directive to recruit young men to the militia. The Soviet police force, and Budakov's name wound up on the list.
0: Had Budakov refused, he knew that his string of promotions would have quickly dried up. In Soviet Russia, you go where the system tells you, so he reluctantly switched over to walking the streets as a beat cop.
2: One good thing about the Soviet system there was plenty of room for promotion. Budakov's brains got him off the streets and into the criminology academy at Volgograd.
0: His superiors liked his peasant fortitude. Given a task, Budakov would not stop until finished. The militia were years away from their first computer system, so most work was conducted through long, tedious searches by hand. In other words, discipline solved cases. He was assigned
2: to Rostov, a city known for its sky-high crime rates, and took his seat in the forensics library. There he would have remained had not Major Mikhail Fedazov come to him in December of 1982 with a particularly grisly case. The killer was known among police as the Lesopolis Killer, Russian for Forest Path. They had four victims already, and young August Almachinok had been reported missing. But with so little evidence, the Lesopolis Killer, who we now know to be Andrei Chikatilo, was much
0: more of a hunch than an actual case. Why so little evidence? Let's talk a bit about police procedure. A typical Soviet police investigation begins far away from the crime itself. Officers cordon off the scene, then walk in tighter and tighter circles towards the body. This is in hopes of finding evidence left on the ground.
2: Unfortunately, Chikatilo often left his victims in fields absolutely littered with trash. Searching for clues was like finding a needle in a garbage dump.
0: And the average officer wasn't exactly Sherlock Holmes. A case consisted of two teams, the militia, beat cops who do the groundwork, and procurators, lawyers who tailor the case for trial. No love was lost between the two. Procurators were constantly complaining about lazy or stupid militia ruining evidence, which made the militia hate them in turn.
2: So, Berdikov was gathering questionable evidence from incompetent handlers through a chain of command that disliked itself. And, of course, they couldn't learn anything without fresh bodies.
0: On December 27, 1983, police discovered the body of 14-year-old Sergei Markov with 70 stab wounds, a castrated penis, and samples of dried semen around his rectum. Soviet technology couldn't narrow this to a DNA fingerprint, but they could determine that the killer's semen was type AB.
2: Two weeks later, the police found the body of 17-year-old Natalia Shalapinina, with her breasts, nose, and lips bitten off. They also found a size 43 shoe print in the mud next to her body. This suggested a large man, even by Soviet standards.
0: And over his first year on the case, Budakov noticed one more detail. Many of the victims tended to have some sort of mental disability, This was unsurprising, as a disabled child would be easier to lure away than a fully cognizant one. But was it possible that the killer was also mentally disabled?
2: This was a common assumption in the police force. Any crime with perverse or bizarre details was immediately blamed on the mentally ill.
0: Unfortunately, Soviet Russia didn't know how to handle mental disability. Parents of a child with any sort of mental irregularity— Down syndrome, retardation, etc.— would often ship them off to an internati, a boarding school for disabled kids. And it's difficult to express how awful these schools could be. Most were unsanitary, unsupervised, and in many ways unfit for human habitation.
2: With that upbringing, many graduated from school ill-adjusted to society. Some turned to drinking, prostitution, or extreme violence. Of course, many others graduated to perfectly normal lives, but an unfair bias took hold. To many, internati students could be synonymous with criminal.
0: This will be a recurring theme through our episode. No one in the department, certainly not Murakov, had much experience with serial killers. To them, insanity looked, functioned, and behaved a certain way. They weren't looking for a quiet old supply clerk like Chikatilo. They
2: were looking for someone like Yuri Kalenek. Yuri was a young graduate from the Internati school, who frequently traveled the rails with his Internati friends. One night in September of 1983, two of them found an abandoned trolley bus and began to play inside. Police arrested them for trying to steal the trolley, and seeing that they were Internati, started to grill them on the Lesopolis killings. Within days, Kalenic confessed.
0: Suspects often gave false confessions under interrogation, especially if torture is involved. Abuse could range from keeping prisoners awake for days to physical attacks. Years later, Kalenic would remember how the guards treated him.
2: Quote, They don't leave traces. They know where to hit you. Around the kidneys, for instance. They cover their hands with towels so there's no blood. They'd show me three photographs, one of which was the victim. At first, I might point to an entirely different person. And then they'd say, think hard, you understand? They'd help me. So I'd point to another one.
0: Budakov immediately doubted Kalenik's confession. As a teenager, he'd once been mistakenly arrested and kept awake in his cell for three days. He knew that a suspect would say anything for a few hours of sleep.
2: But the upper brass was happier with a closed case than an open one. To disagree with them, Budikov would have to prove outright that Kalenic couldn't be the killer.
0: This, of course, would only take time. After all, Chikatilo was still out there.
2: We'll return to our story in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more, live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: Now the story continues.
2: On October 8th, 1983 an unknown woman's body turned up in the woods near the town of Novoshakhtinsk. Her breastplate split open and her left eye missing. A few weeks later, the body of 19-year-old Vera Shevkun surfaced. Someone had bashed in her skull, strangled her, and removed her sexual organs. Yuri Kalenek had still been in his cell.
0: The police brought in another internati student who soon confessed. And when another body turned up, they brought in someone else. They decided that all these suspects were in a gang of Internati students raping and killing girls. From his limited understanding of serial killers, Budakov knew this was ridiculous. The intimate nature of the killings suggested one murderer. Multiple killers would have left different methods, techniques, or improvisations from murder to murder. These killings had the consistency of a ritual. Besides, if the gang members were getting caught, the killings should have been slowing down
2: instead they were speeding up in 1982 the year the case started Chicatillo took seven victims in 1983 he took eight the year was now 1984 and the lesopolis killer would take 15 victims by september at one point he was killing once every two weeks
0: why the sudden increase well Chicatillo's life hadn't been going well His wife, Fenya, was becoming passive-aggressive about their bedroom activities, or lack thereof. His son, Yuri, began to act out and disrespect him. And at the beginning of 84, work took a turn for the worse.
2: It started with a missing car engine on one of Chikatilo's orders. When his boss accused him of stealing it, Chikatilo denied the charge vehemently. For a guy who murdered children in the woods, he had a strong disdain for thievery.
0: Nearly everyone in the Soviet economy skimmed off the top. Normally, this would have gotten only a slap on the wrist. But Chikatilo was disliked in his office. He was cagey and antisocial. His receipts from his travels were strange, and he'd stay out of town much longer than he had to. His boss had been trying to get rid of him for a while.
2: So on February 22nd of 1984, Chikatilo's boss fired him and filed criminal charges against him.
0: Chikatilo knew that the local court was too backed up to actually try the case, but it reaffirmed his personal motto, the world was unfair, specifically to him. All that resentment drove him with increasing frequency to the forest paths.
2: Chikatilo was also getting more proficient at killing. He would revisit special killing spots hidden away from the public. He learned where to stab to limit the blood spray and prolong the suffering. And other than the interrogation after his first killing, police seemed completely unaware of his existence.
0: That was until September 13, 1984.
2: It had only been a week since Chikatilo had killed his latest victim, a 24-year-old librarian named Irina Luchinskaya. He was stalking prostitutes in a Rostov bus station when a police officer demanded to see inside his briefcase. In it, Chikatilo had a rope, a knife, and a tube of lubricant. The cop was sure he found the killer. But we know from history that this wasn't the end for the butcher of Rostov. How did Budakov mess up such an obvious catch?
0: In one word, blood. When a new body appeared, Budakov had a process to find witnesses.
2: Check those nearby, check the trains, check the porno stores, check the civilist clinics, check the internati, check the local gay men, and most importantly, check the children. The goal was to establish a list of suspects as long as possible. Next, the police would narrow those suspects down to all those who had type AB blood. Everyone on that list would be interrogated.
0: It was a very Russian strategy, simple, methodical, and work-intensive. But it didn't work on Chikatilo.
2: Because Andrei Romanovich Chikatilo had type A blood.
0: See, the A.B. samples that the militia had found at the crime scene were semen, not blood. But to the police's knowledge, blood and semen types were always the same. This came in handy because, let's face it, getting an involuntary semen sample poses some obvious difficulties.
2: But it turns out that a small percentage of people, and we're talking astronomically small, have different blood and semen types. No one in the world, not KGB or FBI, knew this yet. But as luck would have it, Chikatilo was one of those cases.
0: Budakov had only one true piece of evidence against the killer, the A.B. semen type. It was the filter through which every suspect passed. And, like we said, the suspect list was insanely long, spanning thousands of names at this point. When Budakov heard Chikatilo's blood type didn't match, he mentally checked out.
2: Normally, the Soviet police can only hold a suspect for 10 days without charging him. Chikatilo was going to walk off scot-free. Then, someone found the engine theft. It wasn't a serious crime, but it gave procurators a reason to hold on to Chikatilo, just in case new information appeared. He was found guilty and held in jail until December of that year.
0: So remember, Chikatilo's deadliest year was also the one where he spent three months in prison. Think of how high the number could have been.
2: With Chikatilo in jail, Budakov found himself against a wall. The body count had increased, then suddenly cut off. He had a list of open murders and no new evidence coming in.
0: And Budakov must have sensed that his vision of the killer was misaligned. After all, how could an Internati student lure away children or stump crime scene investigators? He wanted to learn more about who this man was and how he thought. He needed to access the killer's mind.
2: So we turned to two of the most unlikely allies a Soviet police officer could possibly find. A psychiatrist and a gay man. Let's start with the psychiatrist. Stalin didn't like psychiatry. After all, a dictator obsessed with control wouldn't love the idea of a more self-conscious public. That's why Alexander Bukhanovsky, 20th century Russian psychiatrist, is kind of the badass of the case. He studied gay and transgender sexuality, a controversial focus in homophobic Soviet Russia.
0: For the time and place, Bukhanovsky was incredibly progressive. Remember, this was a closed-minded society that viewed being gay as immoral. But Bukhanovsky championed the idea that being gay was genetic, not moral. He saw gay men as an unfairly persecuted demographic, demonized by a prejudiced society, and if gay and transgender people were inclined toward crime, and they were, statistically speaking, it was by nurture, not nature. Of course, those above Budakov would never bring a psychiatrist onto a police case. Budakov actually had to go in secret to Bukhanovsky to ask him questions.
2: His request was simple. From the information they gathered, construct a psychiatric profile of the killer. Bukhanovsky responded with a 65-page thesis. Some of the finer points compressed are as follows, Quote, his sexual perversions are fully developed, so he's older, 45, maybe 50. He likely has problems with impotence that can only be satisfied by his killings, but that doesn't mean he's alone. He can have a wife, children even. He doesn't appear to be crazy or retarded, and yet he's mentally deranged. When the urge to kill comes, he can no more resist it than a hungry man resists food end quote. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's a little freaky how spot-on Bukhanovsky was.
0: Mm -hmm. Budakov agreed that his killer wouldn't be apparently psychotic or mentally challenged, but he moved straight from internati students to another demographic, the gay community. Gay men in the Soviet Union lived in deep secrecy and shame, finding partners in other closeted men or young prostitutes. The logic went that shameful sex leads to self-loathing, and self-loathing can turn dangerous.
2: Budakov suspected that his killer might be a gay man who had turned to a new sexual thrill. He arrested a closeted gay man named Valery Ivanyenko and threatened to charge him.
0: And more importantly, publicly out him, which would have lost him his government-issued apartment and job.
2: If Ivanyenko didn't turn informant. The case shocked Ivanenko so much that Budakov didn't need to threaten him. Ivanenko wanted to help stop the killer in any way he could, and began suggesting persons of interest. All told, he brought over 400 gay men to Budakov.
0: But of course, all of the men were innocent. When Bukhanovsky heard Budakov was centering his investigation on gay men, he chided Budakov for his homophobic theory. The killer didn't attack young boys because he was gay. He attacked young boys because they were available to him.
2: After nearly a year of interrogations, all Budakov had found were 400 lonely men terrified of losing their families. And as a level of respect grew between Budakov and Ivanenko, Budakov admitted his theory was wrong. Seems like a lot of wasted
0: time, doesn't it? It was, but it also marked a crucial turning point for Budakov. Up to this point, Budakov had focused on men who fit the prejudiced Soviet idea of a pervert—mentally handicapped, possibly gay, perpetually criminal. Ivanyenko and Bukhanovsky were painting a different portrait. Maybe the killer looked like an everyday citizen. Maybe he had a family, a job, a normal life. But beneath that perfectly manicured surface lurked the monster.
2: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
0: Now, our story continues. My
2: present visit to the United States is a confirmation that Soviet-US relations are and In 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev took office as the clarity, eighth and, and final leader of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev hoped to take Russia in a more progressive, capitalistic direction than it had ever seen. Instead, he would see the end of the regime.
0: And as Gorbachev stepped onto the world stage, Chikatilo stepped out of his short stint in prison on December 12, 1984. Still, it was long enough to rattle him.
2: No one on the outside knew the real reason for Chikatilo's incarceration. Even Chikatilo's wife, Fenya, thought the arrest had just been over the engine theft. But even if a single procurator had noticed this interrogation after the Yelena a murder, Chikatilo might never have come out of the jail. And just as with Yelena, fear temporarily overwhelmed his bloodlust. For the first eight months of freedom, Chikatilo stayed away from the forest paths.
0: Ironically, this hiatus would be one of the most damning pieces of evidence against Chikatilo when he tried to plead insanity the Soviet court determined insanity by whether the accused a couldn't comprehend the morality of his crime or b couldn't physically stop himself from committing it. This eight-month hiatus suggested that neither of these applied to Chikatilo. He knew what he was doing. And if he was in danger of being caught, he knew how to stop.
2: But only for so long. In August 1985, on a trip to Moscow, 18-year-old Natalia Poklistova approached Chikatilo near the airport asking for a cigarette. Her body would be found only days later. Chikatilo abstained from murder for another year and nine months. Then in 1987, returned to killing in earnest.
0: But this time, circumstances would be different. One of Gorbachev's new policies was the glasnost, or greater freedom of the press. For the first time, Rostov civilians could read about the Lesopolis killer in full. Even Chikatilo followed his own case in the morning newspaper.
2: Before rumors of secret government bureaus or Caucasian gangs, not white people but migrants from the Caucasus, dominated the kidnappings. Now young girls receive lectures from their parents not to wander off a single older men.
0: But not so for the young boys. While it might have seemed natural to warn daughters against predators, the idea of a man raping and killing boys proved a difficult concept for parents to discuss. Also, let's face it, young boys in any part of the world aren't known for their sense of caution.
2: So Chikatilo adjusted his strategy. Before his 1984 arrest, he trended heavily toward female victims. But from 1987 to 1989 alone, Chikatilo killed eight young boys, compared to only three girls.
0: This is what Bukhanovsky was getting at. The change in Chikatilo wasn't a reflection of Chikatilo's sexuality. In fact, it was the opposite. When choosing his victims, Chikatilo was purely opportunistic. If girls became harder to convince, he focused on boys. If adults could overpower him, he preyed on children, from drunken prostitutes to the kindergartners. Chikatilo always sought out the most vulnerable targets, regardless of gender. Once they were under his knife, anyone would do.
2: Unfortunately, this left Budakov with little to go on. The case had entered its fifth year and was widely considered an embarrassment to the department. Budakov had investigated 5,845 criminals, 10,000 mentally ill patients, 416 gay men, and a whopping 163,000 car owners. This on a hunch that the killer would have needed an automobile. A quick aside, the automobile wasn't as silly as it sounds. Unlike the Ford-saturated United States, very few Soviets could afford the luxury of their own car.
0: And as a byproduct, police were able to close 1,062 unrelated cases, including 95 murders and 245 rapes. But no measurable progress had been made on the killer.
2: Fetisov and Budakov were able to keep their jobs, mostly thanks to their superiors constantly getting sacked by Gorbachev. But their newest boss, hotshot prosecutor Isa Kostoyev, wasn't their first pick. His strategy was to double down on two demographics he saw as the most likely culprits, automobile owners and gay men.
0: For Budakov, it was a step backward.
2: By the late 90s, Chikatilo's life had developed a comfortable routine. His daughter gave birth to a boy who Chikatilo adored. He repaired his relationship with his son, and he also found a stable job as an engineer, one that still allowed his excursions into the woods.
0: In a way, it seemed the most stable time of his life. But a serial killer can never have total stability. And as Chikatilo's regular life calmed, his secret one raged. Take the murder of Tatiana Rijova.
2: In March 1989, Chikatilo met the 16-year-old Tatiana the same way he met most of his victims. She was a runaway teen who'd exchange sex for liquor, but for whatever reason he didn't take her into the woods. Instead, he suggested using his daughter's nearby vacant apartment.
0: Why would he deviate from the norm? Possibly to spice up his routine, possibly because it was convenient, but Chikatilo would later claim that he'd always approached victims hoping only to have sex with them, then would become enraged when he failed. Yes, most men looking for sex don't pack a knife and a rope, but this was part of the ritual. Even while he prepared his weapons, Chikatilo needed to start the fantasy with the thoughts of sex, not murder. He knew it would end in blood, and yet he didn't. It was textbook serial killer compartmentalization, and because of this delusion, he might have thought the apartment was a fine idea.
2: It wasn't. When Chikatilo failed to perform, as he always did, Tatiana began to shout and scream. Chikatilo silenced her by stabbing her in the cheek. He gruesomely murdered Tatiana just like his other victims. But this time, the body wasn't in the woods. It was in an apartment with Chikatilo's name on the lease.
0: Chikatilo knew he had to dispose of the body, so he decided to hack the body into pieces with a kitchen knife to move them easier. He loaded the pieces onto a sled he found downstairs, covered the mess with a tarp, and began to drag it into the night.
2: Chikatilo had never been more exposed. Any of the neighbors could have seen him with the stolen sled, let alone the body parts. He managed to make it out of the courtyard, across the sidewalk.
0: Then a stranger approached him. Without a word, the man took hold of the sled rope
2: and helped him pull it the rest of the way across the street. After thanking the Good Samaritan, Chikatilo dragged the sled the rest of the way to a sewage drain and dumped Tatiana into it.
0: It had been a decade since Chikatilo had started killing. Maybe these slip-ups were signs of overconfidence, or maybe part of him was waiting to be caught.
2: There were other signs of strain, Chikatilo became obsessive about an illegal sewage drain running through his son's yard and sent a constant barrage of letters to the local magistrate. It drew unnecessary attention to him, and even Fenya told him to give it up.
0: But something in Chikatilo was slipping. He had long kept his two worlds separate, his ordinary daily life and his grotesque crimes in the woods. Whenever his resentment rose, Chikatilo could stay calm so long as he found a victim, He knew that his straight life needed to be as safe and quiet as possible to avoid drawing attention to his secret one. But the animal in one world was bleeding into the other. He couldn't be safe and quiet any longer. For the first time, he was making stupid mistakes. But his investigators were facing yet another setback. The only real evidence Budakov had ever had was the blood type. With a single fax, he lost that as well.
2: In December 1988, Dr. Svetlana Gutovaya, head of the biolab at the Ministry of Health in Moscow, sent a message to all Soviet police departments. In it, she cited new studies that suggested semen and blood types didn't always match. Though cases were rare, police could no longer use blood as a reliable test for a suspect's semen type.
0: Translation, the thousands of men Budakov had already tested were once again suspects and all of their progress was obsolete. It seemed to be the death blow for the investigation. It was actually the saving grace.
2: Without the blood type, Budikov knew he had no chance of tracking down the killer. He'd have to catch him in the act, or not at all. It was then that Budikov noticed a single trend among the killings. Many had taken place close to the Aliktryshka rail.
0: The elektrishka, a network of commuter train rails throughout the empire, was vastly important for citizens. It was the cheapest way to get from city to city. And Budakov was right. Chikatilo used it frequently, both for transportation and scouting out victims.
2: Unfortunately, the Elektrishka had far too many stations and far too many passengers to guard reliably. Budakov would have to know which station the Lesopolissa would strike to have a chance
0: at catching him. Which wasn't impossible. We mentioned before that Chikatilo had a few favorite locations to bring victims, spots out of the way where a child's screams wouldn't attract attention. Such a place was right near the Donleshkov station, a little-used platform.
2: In October 1990, Brutakov and the case's head investigators developed a trap. They would put conspicuous policemen at all the major thoroughfares on the Elektrishka line, hoping to nudge the killer onward. Then a small number of plainclothes police officers would guard three lesser stations, Donleshkov included, and wait. It required a significant bump in manpower, 360 new officers, one of the largest single militia operations of all time.
0: So you could imagine the frustration when a fresh body appeared in the woods outside the Donleshkov platform, just past the plainclothes officers. Her name was Svetlana Korostik. She'd suffered multiple stab wounds, amputated genitals, and her tongue and nipples were missing. The autopsy dated the killing back to November 6th, a few weeks after the trap had been set.
2: The officer on guard had taken a lunch break, and theoretically, he told Kostoyev he could have missed Svetlana while he was gone. However, he did remember seeing something on his return. An older man drinking water from the well, his clothes muddied, and a small smear of blood on his cheek. The guard had taken down his name, Andrei Chikatilo.
0: The name meant nothing to Kostoyev. He hadn't even been on the case for Chikatilo's 1984 arrest. But for once, luck was on the side of the law. Vetyzov had been driving past Don Leshkov when the news hit and drove to the station to yell at the guards responsible. When he heard Chikatilo's name, everything clicked.
2: On November 20th, 1990, Chikatilo tried to proposition a young boy outside of a beer stand. As soon as the boy left, Feduzov and a group of policemen stepped out and handcuffed him. He didn't put up a fight, nor did he say anything on the way to the station. Those around him described him as calm, tired even.
0: It had been 12 years since Chikatilo's first murder. He was ready to be caught.
2: That didn't mean he was ready to confess. For the first few days of interrogation, Chikatilo seemed to be on the edge of breaking. He'd write long, rambling letters hinting at a darkness within him. In one such letter, he discussed the vagrants he would seek as targets. Quote, These bums attract minors in their dark net. They head from the stations in different directions on the trains. I had to watch scenes from the sex life of these bums in the stations and on the trains. And I remembered my humiliation that I couldn't ever prove myself a complete man. And a question arose, do these rotten elements have a right to exist, end quote. But Chikatilo never directly referenced the murders. He'd end each session promising to confess the next day, only to return with the same vague self-hatred.
0: It's unlikely that Chicatilo was playing coy for the sake of it. Since childhood, his world of reality and fantasy had been kept rigidly separate. He'd never told anyone, even his wife, a portion of his misdeeds.
2: The department only had 10 days to obtain a confession, and their window was closing. On the 9th, Kostoyev allowed Burakov to bring in the only person who truly understood Chikatilo, Alexander Bukhanovsky.
0: Bukhanovsky agreed to talk with Chikatilo, but only on three conditions. He would speak with him alone, without any recording, the conversation would only be used to loosen Chikatilo. They could not submit it as evidence. And Bukhanovsky would speak to Chikatilo as a psychiatrist, not an investigator. He wouldn't try to steer Chikatilo. He would just listen.
2: Chikatilo agreed to speak to him, saying, quote, I don't know him, but I would be able to tell him about some psychological manifestations I've suffered. I feel I can't explain some of the things I've done, end quote. We'll never know exactly what Bukhanovsky said to Chikatilo. But within two hours, the Lesopolis killer began to confess.
0: Following the talk, Bukhanovsky demonstrated sympathy toward Chikatilo. He saw a man who had lived a deeply unhappy life and had become addicted to his one source of relief. He suggested that Chikatilo was insane and deserved treatment, not execution.
2: But the state psychiatrist, Dr. Andrei Kachenko, had the final word on Chikatilo. After days of interviewing, Kachenko admitted that Chikatilo's violence stemmed from childhood. There was even evidence that Chikatilo had sustained bruising on his brain as a fetus, which could have damaged his ability to empathize. But most important to Kachenko was Chikatilo's ability to stop killing. Quote. Despite a lengthy investigation, one cannot be sure that everything has been clarified down to the last detail. Nobody knows everything except Chikatilo himself. Yet these winter periods are evidence that he was still perfectly in control of the situation. He was still able to restrain his impulses." Why did Bukhanovsky's opinion that Chikatilo was mentally ill and therefore wasn't fit for trial went out?
0: Well, that has to do with how Soviet law functions. In America, the prosecution and defense are seen as competitors. Each side can bring in experts whose perspective helps their case. But in Soviet courts, there are no sides. Defense, prosecution, and judge are all working together to find the truth.
2: So when the state psychiatrist says a prisoner is fit for trial, that's the final word. Bukhanovsky was never even called to testify. Mm.
0: In another court, such as the American justice system, Bukhanovsky might have been able to determine that Chikatilo was insane and unfit for trial. But it's a bit poetic, isn't it? Only the Soviet Union could create the specific type of monster that was Andrei Chikatilo, and only the Soviet Union could destroy him.
2: Though it was hardly the Soviet Union anymore. On August 21, 1991, facing a rebellion across the regime, Gorbachev dissolved the government and resigned. The Soviet Union was over and the first major media event for post-communist Russia was the Chikatilo trial.
0: And it was a circus over the six month process. Chikatilo became more and more unhinged within his metal cage.
2: At one point in an argument with the judge, he turned to the crowd and exposed his penis shouting, what could I do with this useless thing throughout the trial? Chikatilo continued to expose himself, rant nonsensically, and at one point claimed to the judge that he was pregnant.
0: This was all probably an act to boost his incredibly unlikely insanity plea. Chikatilo's guards noted that his attitude in his cell was somber, quiet, and reserved. Only in front of the court cameras did he begin to rant and rave.
2: But Judge Leonid Akubzhanov wasn't stirred. On October 14, 1992, he sentenced Chikatilo to death for 52 of the 53 murders for which he had been tried. It would be another year and a half of appeals before the sentence was carried out. But on February 14, 1994, Valentine's Day, Chikatilo was taken back to his cell and executed for his crimes. The butcher of Rostov was finally dead.
0: But not everyone saw reason to celebrate. In his final statement, Judge Akubzhanov laid plenty of blame on the police for their mistakes. As Kostoyev took to attacking the other investigators in the press, Budakov and Fetizov retreated, bitter and exhausted.
2: But Akubzhanov also had much to say about Soviet society. In his mind, they all bore some responsibility for Chikatilo's killings. Quote, In our Soviet Union, there was no banditry, no killing of children, nothing bad. We lived in a barrack socialism, where the word of an adult was law. I was raised that way. If we had a normal system of upbringing, none of these children would have taken up with this stranger.
0: Thank you for joining us over the last two weeks as we trace the life of Andrei Chikatilo, the butcher of Rostov.
2: Don't forget to subscribe to Serial Killers on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parkast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode of Serial Killers comes out every Monday. Please let us know what you think, and join the conversation on our Parkast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parkast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. As always, we thank you for listening. Have a killer week.
0: Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy, additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Serial Killers is written by Connor Fitzgerald and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.